Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, and here today we have part three of Rugby League Reflections, a one-day conference to mark 21 years of Tom Brock activities. Uh, I hope everyone's enjoyed the first two sessions, which we've put out in the last couple of days. This is the third of four. Uh, Just before we get into it, I just want to note that the audio you've heard from the conference comes courtesy of Krakenite Films. So uh, very thankful to Nick at Krakenite Films for sharing the audio with us and giving you all the chance to listen to it. So we'll get right into session three. Uh, kicking off is Joe Gorman, who regular listeners would have, would have heard me plugging his book Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland. I hope a lot of you have gone out and got a copy of that. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant book. I, I really love what Joe's done with it. Anyone who hasn't read it or hasn't picked up a copy yet, this talk should really whet the appetite for you. It's, uh, it obviously shares a title with the book and many of those same themes. So, so it was a great presentation by Joe, which goes into the place of rugby league in the Queensland psyche. So uh, I'll just throw straight to Joe. How Rugby League Explains Queensland. So, 17 years ago, um, the late Alex Buzo delivered the third Tom Brock lecture, and it was titled Sydney Heart of Rugby League. Recalling idiosyncratic commentators, paperboys wearing rugby league jerseys, and that famous street march to save the Rabbitohs, Buzo argued that Sydney was the only major city in the world where rugby league is the dominant sport, and therefore it could claim to be unique. Now, at the end of his lecture, Buzo pondered what the future might bring. Perhaps we can look forward to a spirited and well-argued Brisbane part of rugby league at a future Tom Brock lecture, he concluded. It would be a case of stripping the ball, but at least this time it would be one-on-one. Now, my lecture today is not an attempt to strip the ball. The former NRL chief executive, Dave Smith, already did that in 2014 when he claimed that Queensland is the new heartland of Australian rugby league. What I would like to do for the next 20 minutes or so is run with that ball. So much of what I want to speak today um, is drawn from my latest book, which obviously is pictured here, and this was published um, in August by the University of Queensland Press. Now, before I sort of begin, it must be said that um, 2019 was a shocker for Queenslanders. Um, The Brisbane Broncos just scraped into the top eight and then got smashed in the first leg of the finals. My team, the North Queensland Cowboys, struggled all season, probably recovering from the floods at the start of the year, and um, the Ben Barber incident, obviously, and they finished 14th on the ladder. And the Gold Coasts were an embarrassment, as usual. (laughs) Worst of all, the Maroons lost a second consecutive State of Origin series. 
But one poor season is not going to change the fact that rugby league is like a secular religion in Queensland. The, games, the game brings together city and country, blackfellas and whitefellas, and at state of origin time it converts people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in the NRL. Now, of course, no sport is ever a flawless reflection of its host society. That's not working. Like that. Let me start again. Of course, no sport is ever a flawless reflection of its host society, whether it be soccer in Brazil, baseball in the United States, or Gaelic football in Ireland. But for more than 40 years, rugby league has embodied all the hopes and dreams, contradictions and tensions of life in the Sunshine State. If you drive into Innisfail in the far north, there is a welcome notice that tells you are entering the hometown of State of Origin legends, Billy Slater and Ty Williams. Further north, the sign for Gordon Vale welcomes passers-by to the home of NRL champion Nate Miles. There are streets named after rugby league players in Mackay, Toowoomba, Logan and Caboolture. Eagleby, that's right. Um, community, <laughs> community football fields named after Artie Beetson and Gary Larson and Alan McIndoe. And a stretch of the Warrego Highway pictured here is even called the Darren Lockyer Way. In fact, it's difficult to go anywhere in Queensland without being reminded of rugby league. This headline's a good example. Um, there is no doubt that State of Origin, which will turn 40 next year, has been the centrifugal force driving the continued popularity of the game up north. The three-game series allows Queenslanders to reaffirm an idea we have of ourselves as a people and as a geographic entity. However, as I want to argue today, there is more to the story than simply beating New South Wales. In my view, rugby league has thrived in Queensland because it, the game reflects several key features of the state's identity. Its unique decentralisation, its coming of age in the 1990s, and also its reckoning with race and reconciliation. So, of course, I'm not going to have time to fully flesh out each of these three themes today, but what I want to do is focus in on the season 2015. This was a year in which the Maroons completed their fa famous decade of dominance in State of Origin, a year which brought us the first ever All-Queensland NRL Grand Final, the year in which Mal Meninga was appointed Kangaroos coach and Jonathan Thurston won a, fourth, a record fourth M Award. So in other words, 2015 was a year in which Queenslanders dominated almost every aspect of Australian Rugby League. It was, in many ways, a glorious culmination of the State of Origin era, the high point of Queensland's Rugby League renaissance. So for the last, for at least 50 years, I should say, the state of Queensland has been under constant scrutiny. To many Australians, as Humphrey McQueen wrote in 1979, Queensland is more a state of mind rather than the state of their nation. In fact, Queensland's most persistent difference is its rural and its regional character. Mining and agriculture remain a major part of the economy, while more than half the popula population lives outside of the capital city, making, it, uh, making Queensland the most decentralised state in mainland Australia. That fact, as well as the sheer size of the place, means that many Queenslanders continue to live separated by enormous distances, often in vastly different places and circumstances. In 2015 alone, Queensland was hit by freak rainfall in Caboolture, snow in Stanthorpe, Cyclone Marsha in Rockhampton, and Cyclone Nathan in Cooktown. A coastal earthquake rattled homes from Bundaberg to Burley Heads, while 80% of the state suffered through crippling drought. That was 2015. Observers often link the extremity of the climate with the eccentricity of Queensland's people and politics. 
Queensland had settled in the tropics, wrote historian Raymond Evans, and the tropics had settled in them. One of the central dramas of Queensland's history has been the contest between the South and the North, the city and the country. Ever since the state boundaries were first drawn, there have been concerns that Queensland is simply too big and too unwieldy to remain as one single united entity. And even despite the advances in telecommunications and infrastructure, many people believe that Queensland should still be split in half to become two separate states. In 2010, for instance, um, 98 of 100 local mayors, still not working. 98 of 100 local mayors from Mackay to Mount Isa voted in favour of full statehood for North Queensland. And in April 2015, Bob Catter, the federal member for Kennedy, put the issue of Queensland separation on the agenda once more. Take a look at this front page from the Tully Times with Mad Catter and his Cowboys cap. Now, the rivalry between the North Queensland Cowboys and the Brisbane Broncos always had the potential to divide Queensland, to actually further amplify those wider socio-political tensions that existed in the region. In truth, though, rugby league has become the symbol of Queensland unity, something that actually Catter himself admits. When anyone calls me a Queenslander, I always correct him and say, I'm a North Queenslander, Catter once told me. Having said that, let there be no doubt that I've had heart attacks trying to bring the Queensland side home. So why is this the case? Well, for one thing, the Queensland side has always been remarkably inclusive. In the first ever State of Origin match in 1980, the players originally hailed from Ipswich, Killarney, Toowoomba, Roma, Innisfail, Townsville, Rockhampton, Bundaberg, and of course from Brisbane. The captain was an Aboriginal man, Arthur Beetson, and the goal kicker that day was an Australian South Sea Islander, Mal Meninga. By 2015, two-thirds of the squad were drawn from the bush and one-third identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So in effect, the Maroons have become a visual symbol of Queenslanders working together, a representative team in the truest sense of the word. That's why in every pub worth drinking at, whether you're in Ipswich or Innisfail, you'll find a framed Maroon jersey hanging on the wall, often beside a local club jumper or an all-team photo. Indeed, while all the other football codes and cricket tend to be Brisbane-centric, Rugby League has established three NRL clubs in Queensland's three biggest cities, as well as an expansive state competition which stretches from Tweed Heads in the south right through to Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville, Cairns, and all the way even up to Papua New Guinea. This is actually an incredible achievement. Here you have a second-tier semi-professional competition which has a larger footprint than most football competitions the world over. In fact, the QRL has been operating um, some kind of state league since 1982. Many people forget the old Winfield State League, but that competition was revolutionary for its time. Here on the right, we can see players from the Wide Bay team, and on the left, from the Toowoomba Clydesdales. So the Winfield State League back in the 80s served two basic purposes. It broadened the game's commercial appeal, and it also helped to unify the entire state for the first time in weekly competition. In time... It produced many players, um, and it even helped birth an NRL club. In 1991, North Queensland were the first regional side to win the old State League. Their coach that year was Kerry Bosted, and their captain was Laurie Spina. When the Cowboys were admitted to the ARL competition 18 months later in 1992, Bosted was the club's inaugural CEO, and Spina became the inaugural captain in 95 when they actually took the field. So were these two things related? According to Boosted, absolutely. 
At the time, both had acknowledged that winning the state league was an important part of North Queensland's bid to be part of a national competition, as it showed there was the requisite talent and organisation to form a competitive team. To this day, the Q Cup... Um, I should go that way, I think. The Q Cup um, plays a vital role in connecting the state in regular competition. Since 2012, games have been regularly taken to small mining towns, farming villages and even former Aboriginal missions. During Country Week, which was held in July this year, first grade matches were held in Ilfracombe, Pittsworth, Cloncurry, Nanango, Ingham, even on Thursday Island. So there is a real sense in Queensland that the economy, the politics and also the rugby league are driven by the regions just as much as it is by the capital city. I once spoke about this with Peter Parr, who is the head of football at the North Queensland Cowboys. Parr obviously is a New South Welshman, and he also once worked for the Brisbane Broncos in the late 1990s. And when he first arrived in Townsville, he noticed that town and regional rivalries tended to be casual and fluid as you move south. So when you're in North Queensland, Southerners refers to Brisbane people and people in the southeast. But when Queenslanders travel together to Sydney, Southerners takes on a whole new meaning entirely. So in his view, in Parr's view, the rivalry between the Cowboys and the Broncos is almost unique in world sport. A lot of rivalries are built on dislike or hatred, he said. This rivalry has been built on respect. The clubs essentially get on, the players have played state of origin together, and so a lot of the players are friends. And therein lies a fundamental difference between rugby league and the two states. Here in Sydney, where self-interest rules, origin is just one event in the rugby league calendar. In Queensland, origin is the foundational story, the big bang that acted as the catalyst for all the changes in the state's rugby league infrastructure. Without origin, there would be no Broncos, no Cowboys, no Gold Coast of whatever form they might take. Um, there have been winners and losers along the way, of course. Um, as communities of people have lost teams and traditions, even entire competitions. So in North Queensland, the old Foley Shield, which was a town versus town competition that produced the likes of Kerry Bostead, Gene Miles, Greg Dowling and Dale Shearer, well, that's now severely diminished and basically dead. And the Brisbane Rugby League, which was the breeding ground for the likes of Artie Beetson and Mal Meninga and Wally Lewis and Chris Close and Trevor Gilmeister, well, that's suffered a slow and painful decline during the 1980s. But the Brisbane Broncos, which in many ways replaced the old BRL, was both a reflection of and a contributor to the modernisation of Brisbane in the 1990s. During their first decade, the Broncos won the midweek National Panasonic Cup. They won four premierships and a World Club Challenge. They broke attendance records. They challenged perceived notions about how a football club should operate. And they reached out to new audiences. The sports writer John Harms, who gave the Tom Brock lecture in 2014, says that Queensland is constantly coming of age. Queenslanders themselves often point to the 1982 Commonwealth Games um, or the World Expo in 1988 as the decisive coming of age moments. Others might say that the downfall of the Conservative government of J.B. Peterson in 1987 was the coming of age moment. But whatever the case, if the 1980s was a period of Queensland renaissance, at least in rugby league, the 1990s marked the period of um, modernity for Queensland, you might say. And the Brisbane Broncos were the sporting symbol of that transition. So one reporter in 1987 wrote that the new franchise's toughest task was not to win games, but to drag rugby league into the 21st century. And on the eve of the Broncos' first premiership in 1992, an editorial in the Courier Mail claimed that Sydney, the club's success proved that Brisbane is a city of the future 
while Sydney's best years were behind it. Despite the Broncos' current troubles, it remains one of the most successful and certainly the most profitable, or one of the most profitable sporting clubs in Australia. And the benefits of this success have not only been accrued in Brisbane and the South East. For all its faults, the Broncos have been a chief driver in promoting rugby league throughout country Queensland, particularly in those early days between 1988 and 1995. John Reba, who is the uh, Broncos' first chief executive, recalls taking all the club's pre-season games to regional centres. Our view was if we go to Townsville or Mackay or Gladstone or Toowoomba, they picked up the expenses and they kept the rest, he once told me. We made a conscious effort in those days to be Queensland's team. So how fitting it was then for the 2015 NRL Grand Final to bring together the Brisbane Broncos and the North Queensland Cowboys. For two decades, these clubs have shared an almost symbiotic relationship stemming from shared history, geography and identity. The captains of the two t teams told a magnificent story. You had Justin Hodges, raised in the far north, leading out the Brisbane Broncos. And then you had Jonathan Thurston, born and raised in the southeast, leading out the North Queensland Cowboys. It was also the first time that both grand final captains had been Indigenous. The friendly atmosphere permeated players and punters alike. So-called rival fans travelled together to the game, many of them wearing a piece of Maroon's memorabilia. Alf Abdullah, who's a well-loved rugby league identity in Mackay, he later told me that um, he desperately wanted the Cowboys to win, even though he's a Broncos supporter. Now, can you ever imagine that happening for two Sydney clubs? There's no chance, right? The Cowboys did win, of course, and they won in spectacular fashion. Many people consider that grand final to be one of the best ever. Sam Strong, who is a director of the Queensland Theatre Company, says those final minutes were an almost perfect piece of storytelling. The ARL Commissioner Chris Sara, Dr Chris Sara, I should say, who spoke about the grand final in federal parliament, called it a festival of positive thinking about the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. That game, he said, was a perfect analogy for the Australian society we can develop. Now, in the months that followed the Cowboys' premiership victory, the club took the Proven Summons Trophy on a massive tour of North Queensland. The trophy was taken through fishing villages in the Gulf of Carpentaria, Indigenous communities in Cape York, and mining towns along the Flinders Highway. It hopped from islands in the Torres Strait to the Pacific Ocean, and road trip past cane fields and cattle farms. All told, the trophy was ferried more than 30,000 kilometres around North Queensland. It was weird, it was wonderful, sometimes pretty wacky, but it seemed to capture all the finest aspects of rugby league in the Sunshine State. One, it was a timely acknowledgement that distance and decentralisation are no hindrance to Queenslanders. Two, it showed that a modern franchise, even with, two, with just two decades of history, could still create moments rich in meaning and belonging. And three, it was proof that Queensland was at its best when it embraced the full diversity of its population. So to conclude today, the story of rugby league in Queensland since the 1970s has been one of dramatic upheaval, enormous loss and constant reinvention. A feeling of perpetual struggle permeates the state, whether it's to, be le to level the playing field in state of origin, to have more Queenslanders selected in the national team or to establish brand new clubs in a national competition. Essentially the struggle has been for representation in Sydney's game. If we judge rugby league's heartland based on power, money or short-term results, then of course Sydney it is. Nobody expects the structural imbalance of the NRL or the politics of the sport to ever truly favour Queenslanders. 
But if the heartland is where the game has deep meaning and resonance and soul, where a place finds its identity and sense of self through rugby league, then there is no doubt that it is now firmly embedded in Queensland. Thanks very much for listening. Okay, so next up we have Drew Cottle with his talk, A History of Craig Bellamy's Melbourne Storm. And what an appropriate time for a retrospective of the Bellamy era at Melbourne. When you think about where they are at the moment. So in all likelihood, Cameron Smith's last year at the club. And we're very much coming to the end of an era. But Melbourne just seemed to keep on keeping on. So at various points, you would have thought that era was going to fall apart going all the way back to the salary cap drama, which which Drew goes into in his talk. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot more interrogation of what's been a remarkable career for Bellamy as a coach and for this storm era, which is surely unprecedented in, quotation marks, the modern era. So uh, good of Drew to get the ball rolling. Uh, again, really enjoyable talk, so I'll go straight to it. Here's Drew Cottle. paper I've prepared rather hurriedly. Um, it's about Craig Bellamy's Melbourne Storm. The, uh, the periodisation's wrong. Bellamy came oh, to Melbourne <coughs> in 2003. Um, Bellamy uh, began playing his football in, in, uh, around the Portland district in New South Wales. And as an apprentice electrician, <coughs> He used to turn out for Oberon <clears throat> in the Country Rugby League for a season before moving on to Macquarie United in the Newcastle <coughs> Rugby League competition. <clears throat> uh, Bellamy was selected for the Canberra Raiders squad in the first season of the uh, New South Wales Rugby League. He proved to be a capable and effective utility player in the Canberra team. <clears throat> and during that time, Canberra were... Uh, coached by Don Ferner, Wayne Bennett and Tim Sheens. Bellamy was usually selected from the bench to play at fullback <coughs> on the wing in the centres <coughs> or sometimes as a replacement halfback, five-eighth, but rarely at lock, but never at hooker. And hooker's an important uh, position for, as you'd know, Melbourne <coughs> and also for Bellamy. <coughs> Bellamy experienced the different management skills of each of these coaches. What was learnt would prove invaluable to him when he became a coach. It could also be inferred that his versatility to play in these strategic positions uh, gave Bellamy the ability later to always choose a strong spine <clears throat> in the teams which he coached. He might, we might consider the, uh, the players chosen those positions, positions for the Melbourne Storm by Melody during his 16-year tenure. Billy Slater at full-back, Greg Inglis and uh, Will Chambers in the centres, Cooper Cronk at half-back, Gareth Whittop as a, a, a half or five-eighth, <clears throat> Cameron Munster playing either full-back, half or five-eighth, all of whom were relatively unknown, Queenslanders with the exception of that local Victorian Welshman, uh, Widdop. 
And they were all eventually selected to Queensland's um, origin squad, or the Kangaroos. <coughs> In this group, Widdop, as I said, was a local Welshman, and Tawira, uh, Nickow, a New Zealander, Locke, who'd played most of his football for English clubs. Locke was the one position Bellamy rarely played. But it was in Hooker, at Hooker that Bellamy found Smith, Cameron Smith, another Queenslander, who'd become the perennial linchpin and anchor of successive Bellamy teams. After retiring as a player for Canberra in 1990, Bellamy became the captain coach for a country rugby league team in Wagga, or Wagga Wagga, before travelling to England to play for a season with Winton, Swinton. He returned to Canberra in 1995 and was appointed by Wayne Bennett as assistant, uh, uh, sorry, as the coach for the, uh, for the uh, Canberra's President Cup team. Um, <clears throat> so with little experience then, Bellamy was appointed by Wayne Bennett as assistant coach and performance coordinator at Brisbane Broncos where his skills were soon in evidence. <laughs> Brisbane were a dominant team in the NRL at this time. Bennett rewarded Bellamy with coaching the, what were called the Baby Broncos, when many of its established players were selected for Bennett's Queensland origin team. Bellamy was appointed coach of the Melbourne side in 2003, after his predecessor, Mark Murray, was sacked because of the team's failure to win the NRL competition. Bellamy came to a club that had survived the football war of the competing professional leagues in which News Corporation created Super League teams in states foreign to rugby league. Unlike the Western Reds, <clears throat> the Adelaide Rams, do you remember them? And most of the Murdoch-dependent clubs Melbourne Storm was one of the clubs which prospered in the compromise of the new National Rugby League competition as other Super League clubs disappeared. Until 2014, Melbourne were owned and controlled by a new, uh, news corporation. Only their continuing success in the NRL as winners has ensured Melbourne Storm's legitimacy and acceptance as an NRL club. The winning team's Melbourne Storm have fielded over 16 years with Bellamy as head coach can be attributed to both Bellamy's coaching and management, as well as, I'd suggest, other unique factors. So apart from the Warriors in New Zealand, where rugby union is part of the national identity, or is it psyche, uh, Melbourne is the only NRL club based in a state where Australian rules is the dominant and historical football code. In the unfolding evolution of the NRL were adaptation to the new rules of the game, its management, corporate operation, commercialisation and professional playing careers. Professional playing careers are continuing, if not paramount necessities. Melbourne Storm, the outlier, have been exceptional. In the relative cultural isolation of Melbourne, the team largely, through its continuing on-field success, are, ad are identified by Victorians as a rugby team and curiously seen as a source of state pride. So some Gallup polls reckon. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
being based in Melbourne, too, has allowed Bellamy the time to concentrate on building discipline and organisation of his teams, relatively free of the scrutiny of sports journalists and social media comment. With their uh, outsider status from the rugby league origin states of New South Wales and Queensland, the stable Melbourne Storm player squad has been honed by Bellamy into a team with a winning mentality. Although Melbourne Storm as a corporate entity are, are calculated to be to have the largest supporter base amongst the NRL clubs, this may be a question of both their exceptional geographic status in the NRL, the team's continuing success under Bellamy's coaching and managing, and its Victorian supporters who have never had to, had to barrack for a constantly losing side season after season. They have 25,000 registered supporters, mostly Victorians, and record crowds of 18,000 through the home games at the purpose-built rectangular Amy Park. Both of these statistics are far more than the other new NRL clubs put together. Well, maybe not with the sole exception of the Brisbane Broncos. Canberra, uh, sorry, can Melbourne Storm, Storm's long run of football success in the NRL be simply f found in Bellamy's character and personality, which inform his management and coaching? In his ghosted management book of 2013, Home Truths, Bellamy reveals his thoughts on leadership, character, teamwork, courage adversity, success and failure related to his own life. He's candid about his shortcomings, failures and successes. But are these issues <coughs> relevant to the way Bellamy has coached Melbourne for 16 years? He's been described by Wayne Bennett as a man of his word, honest, humble, loyal and extremely hard-working. While the long-time captain of uh, Melbourne Storm, Cameron Smith, says that Bellamy is a coach, tells it like it is. <clears throat> for some people, this can be confronting, but they learn he does it for the right reasons. These comments on Bellamy's qualities may not indicate his approach to coaching and managing a successful and affluent rugby league uh, team in a place effectively alien to the game that has increasingly become an entertainment spectacle. Is it still Andrew Moore's opera of the proletariat? <clears throat> Apart from these uh, personal qualities, what kind of football do Melbourne Storm play? Bellamy prepares teams which are disciplined in their relentless and ruthless attack and defence. They're expected to maintain their intensity for the full 80 minutes and beyond. Speed of movement and in the, in the play of the balls is required of every forward and back. Speed, agility and strength on the wings and at fullback are essential in the team's attacking moves. Smith as hooker directs the surging mobile uh, forward pack even though, uh, even though his own tackling prowess is less than inspiring. Smith, Cronk and Munster are expert in their tactical kicking. 
It's been rare in the 13-year period under Bellamy's management that Melbourne Storm have ever been comprehensively beaten or descended into a long and losing streak or consciously failed to win games. Even in Melbourne Storm season, the purgatory following the 2010 salary cap debacle when all points in previous grand final premiership and premiership titles uh, were taken from the team. Uh, the team continued, you'll remember, to win matches. Examination of the composition of the teams Bellamy's has furled each season may also explain their consistency as NRL competition winners, or at least leaders. When Bellamy came to Melbourne from Brisbane in uh, uh, 2003, three Queensland juniors, Slater, Smith and later Cronk, were selected in the Storm's player squad. Slater and Cronk had played in the Australian uh, schoolboys' sides. Despite his speed off the mark, Slater was overlooked by North Queensland as he was considered too small and too slight for the physical battle the Rugby League. He worked briefly as a stable hand in Sydney, hoping to be a jockey, before joining Melbourne in 2003. Smith and Cronk played for Brisbane's uh, Brisbane North Devils, uh, the Melbourne, Melbourne's feeder club in Queensland, before going, before going to Melbourne in 2002 and 2003, respectively. These players became the almost permanent parts of the spine of Bellamy's team for over a decade. Smith was always the hooker, while Slater played sometimes on the wing, but usually at fullback, and Cronk at half or five-eighth. Bellamy moulded his teams <clears throat> around these key players. They each displayed the skill, discipline, effort, honesty and consistency to perform their work as footballers, demanded of them by Bellamy. Apart from the Bellamy spine, the other players of the Melbourne Storm are required to do their jobs effectively and efficiently. Many of these players have been journeymen at other NRL clubs, which no longer wanted them, usually because of financial constraints. That's the nature of the game. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There were made NRL outsiders, I'd say, who found a home in the Melbourne team of outsiders. Over the football seasons, this legion of forwards and packs, uh, backs has been the performing body of Bellamy's teams. They include the Bromwich brothers, Paul Green, Dale Finucane, Nathan Friend, Todd Lowry, Brian Norrie, Tim Glasby, Anthony Quinn... Ryan Hinchcliffe and Dane Nielsen. A significant number of these outsiders were Pacifica players, including Jeff Lima. 
Sikamanu, David Kidwell, Antonio Kafusi, uh, Adam Blair, Tohu Harris, Nelson, I can't say it, Asafa, Solomona, and Sulaisi Vanavalu. Another group of uh, storm outsiders are those players who played or do debuted for Melbourne. They include Dallas uh, Johnson, Ryan Hoffman, Matt King, Israel Folau, James Maloney, Cameron Munster, Felice Kafusi, Christian Welch, um, Brady Croft and, and Brandon Smith. They became the necessary body of the Melbourne storm without which the spine could never function. Whatever their individual playing abilities, Bellamy built them into a formidable winning team. Bellamy's Melbourne Storm was blessed with a spine of outstanding footballing ability. This was achieved through concentrated and demanding practice. The talents of of Slater, Cameron Cameron (coughs) Smith, uh, Cronk and Inglis before his departure to South Sydney were nurtured and developed in Bellamy's team coaching. It was what, ex- what was expected of them in, in the Bellamy game plan. As a coach, Bellamy is dedicated, driven and emotional. This can be seen when Melbourne play in televised matches, where Bellamy's elation, disappointment and frustration with his team's performances are captured during the match. Messages to the runners from Bellamy can't be delivered quickly enough if Melbourne are not playing to his plan. Bellamy has a rapport with his players which is honest, frank and demanding. Roy Masters, the former coach of Western Suburbs and St George and later a senior uh, Fairfax journalist, after moving to Melbourne, formed a close friendship based on football with Bellamy. Masters and Bellamy talked about the problems and trials of coaching. Masters believes that Bellamy's long period of coaching a successful football team is based on his ability to directly and honestly communicate with each individual player as well as an insatiable work rate with an emphasis on teaching, teaching a wide range of fundamental technical skills rather than tactical manoeuvres and set plays. Is Master's judgment of Bellamy's coaching of Melbourne Storm correct? Or did other factors contribute to the successes of Bellamy's Melbourne Storm? What are the Murdoch creation of the club at the start of the football war? Its location and relative cultural isolation in Melbourne. The continuous funding it's received from the Murdoch Corporation until its corporate ownership was privatised in 2013. The corporate expectation about the Melbourne Storm that would would and be would and and would be and remain a winning NRL club. The brilliant experience spine of Bellamy's Melbourne Storm team almost remained a constant feature for over a decade. It too might explain the settled structure of the team over the NRL seasons. Did the massive rorting of the salary cap by Melbourne Storm ensure that its spine wouldn't be broken through the necessary transfers of these players. 
Bellamy certainly is an exceptional coach of a highly successful NRL team, but the reasons for this success may not simply lay in his character, personality or coaching ability. Thanks. Okay, and lastly today we have Spencer Casimir giving his presentation a not-so-golden point why the flip of a coin should have no place in determining the winner. Uh, Spencer has a couple of things going against him. He's an American and he lives in Melbourne, but he manages to be... But he still manages to possess a superior rugby league brain. And uh, this, his presentation, as the title suggests, goes into an alternative solution for golden point. So an appropriate time to be having this discussion with a lot of talk in the press about the future of golden point. I, I got to say, uh, Spencer is a very captivating and compelling salesman. I was sold on his pitch by the end of his presentation. Uh, I dare say it's not going to be met with universal agreement. So this, probably more than any other presentation, would really love to get your thoughts on. And the best place to do that is at our new discussion page on Facebook, which was created by a longtime listener, David Hunter. So really appreciative of Dave for going to that effort. Uh, so you can get involved at Supplement, the Rugby League Digest Super League War Discussion Forum. So on that page, Dave has put up regular polls. There's various discussion topics, and, and you can also add your say any way you want. So I'm uh, really interested to hear everyone's thoughts on Spencer's talk. So again, uh, head, head to that Facebook page or hit us up via the usual channels, uh, the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com, on our Twitter, on our Facebook. So just before we do get to Spencer, I'll just add one production note. Uh, for the rest of the presentations, I haven't included the questions that were asked at the end of each session. That's predominantly because of the audio issues that you invariably get when you have audience members not mic'd up asking a question. So I've so I've made an exception in this case because I think some of the questions and Spencer's responses uh, were really quite pivotal to his argument. So I've included them in this case, uh, and, I've, and I've tried my best to make the questions as audible as possible. So uh, take it away, Spencer. So I guess I'm going to punish you because uh, no slides. You're going to have to listen or ignore me, but there's not going to be no slides. Uh, this is essentially a pickup, uh, almost an epilogue of my Tom Brock research which is on the evolution and the shift from an Anglo-centric to an American-centric um, influence in rugby league, um, away from looking from the UK, but over, I, oddly enough, uh, because of the English decision to go with the four-tackle rule in 96, based on the four-down system in American football, um, to looking to America for more things. People usually misunderstand that uh, this trend started with Jack Gibson, and if you said Jack Gibson, it really should be Terry Fernley, who introduced Gibson to uh, Vince Lombardi's second effort. Um, I almost feel that you know being here is almost kind of like watching a movie where you start with the main character here, and you as an audience are watching that, and then you're brought back in time, and now we're catching up. So all of this research going into this has caught up with what... Um, Richard uh, Cashman uh, asked me when I presented this, which was, now what? So what? What does this mean? How, do, how does this apply? And um, I do live in Melbourne, so there is a continuation of this uh, theme. And uh, 
it actually started with, uh, with Roy Masters. You know, what now? What is this? Um, where are we going? Um, Golden Point was brought in and was influenced by the NFL overtime system. Unlike the NCAA football, which does not have a draw whatsoever, um, the NFL does. Um, and we're going to go back and see how this actually created the product that we have now. And uh, just show of hands, is anybody happy really with Golden Point? Does anybody really like Golden Point? Okay, a few people like it. How many people like a situation where the other team or one of the two teams, based on the toss of a coin, may never touch the ball? Yeah, it doesn't sound very fair, does it? But if uh, that's the way it works right now. Uh, and that does happen in the NFL, but it doesn't happen off of a field goal. It happens only off of the score of a touchdown. Uh, field goals are allowed to be given to the other team and have, give them a chance, an opportunity to tie it up or to win the game. Um, it's not a perfect analogy. Again, as four tackles was influenced by the four downs of American football, the number remained the same, but the actual application is different because four downs in American football is actually one more play the ball than four tackles, which is probably why we quite wisely decided to go to a six-tackle count in 72. So really, what does this have to do with the what now? Um, a lot of people aren't happy with this. I'm personally very happy with the draw. I don't mind. A lot of people aren't, but uh, I think that that's kind of life. Sometimes if you can't do it in the 80 minutes and that's when the deadline is, too bad. But we are talking about a field that's not just sports, but sports entertainment. Um, listen, I, uh, we're talking a little bit uh, in my question to her about really the role of sport as professional versus amateur. What does amateur mean? What does professional mean? Um, is professional bad or good? Uh, in that capacity, uh, and in this sense of professionalism, we have a very big influence that sport as a professional endeavor is not just to entertain you as a player, but to entertain others as viewers. It is a voyeuristic uh, endeavor, and it is a business. And the idea that we have to now not have a draw, whether you're for it or against it, is not really the most important issue. The most important issue is that Right now, the decision has been made that there will be done nearly anything to ensure that there's not a draw. It's more exciting. It's this. There's plenty of arguments. But we have to do it right, and we don't want to take another step backwards or a step sideways by applying laws from other codes that aren't exactly like ours. They seem similar enough. Jack Gibson said about uh, the gridiron in America that it's you know, essentially the same sport, different rules. Um, it, it's, this is, hey, I'm just quoting the man, or paraphrasing, I should say. Um, and there is a certain reality to that. I mean, the, both the American and the Canadian gridiron did have a play the ball with the foot, which became a roll with the hand, which became a snap. We are from the same pre-split rugby family of football. Um, I feel like every time I say that, it's just like this niggling piece of me saying football means played on foot with the ball. It has nothing to do with kicking it, but that's really not for today. Um, so as I'd mentioned, the introduction of a lot of these rules and influences has come from abroad, and that's fine. People have done 
better business practices studies in not just the sports industry, but globally. Um, if you go back to 1906, uh, 45 guys died playing American football. And the pres at the time, President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, along with Walter Camp, um, decided to even get a copy of the Victorian Football League, so the VFL's um, constitution. And it's kind of cool because I got to see Walter Camp's copy of the 1906 VFL constitution. We take, for some reason, we take some shame in looking at other people and see what they're doing well to maybe improve ourselves for whatever reason. There's a little hubris. But Nobody really likes this uh, scenario, and Roy and I had started talking about this over a year and a half ago. It actually started at, uh, not this previous, but the uh, grand final before that, um, where I was on one of my usual rants, and I said, there's going to be a situation where a team loses a coin toss, not the first, the second coin toss, a field goal is kicked, and a lot of people are going to feel robbed. Now, on that same thing, I've also been saying mutual infringement is going to come up someday and somebody's not going to like it. Uh, and we saw what happened uh, in this year's grand final. But we had been trying to talk about this in a not just academic, not just journalist, but a professional setting to say, well, what are we doing? We are, we're trying to put on this show. We're trying to give a good product. We're trying to also entertain people. And the last thing which nobody ever thinks about is, well, what about player welfare? How do we create a good overtime system that respects the 80 minutes that were played, that respects the history of the rules of the game and the history of the game, that provides as many opportunities at a decisive non-draw score while also taking into account player welfare? And uh, I was on uh, uh, ABC Grandstand few months ago, or I don't know how long, I just got back from the U.S., I want to say maybe six weeks with uh, Neve Owens and um, a few other people, uh, and it came up, well, why is this system that you came up with better? And uh, I'll spell out what the system actually is uh, following this. I said, well, you have to realize that if you shift from a limit, time-limited game as opposed to a event-driven or event-limited game, take, for example, 80 minutes on the clock versus two innings in cricket, nine in baseball, um, uh, three out of five or two out of three sets in tennis, what you're doing is you're creating a paradigm for people to know what they're actually going to be doing. Now, within two sets of five-minute overtimes, you don't know what could happen. There's a lot of injury potential. There's definitely a lot of franticness. Um, and Tom Simmons, who is with the RLPA, said, well, actually, that's quite interesting that you'd want to switch from one to the other because in certain ways it's novel. In other ways, you're actually protecting our interests and providing something entertaining. So... With that, like I said, those were the four paradigms, the four pillars that I designed this around, essentially to take all of that history from the 1800s all the way to date, looking at the four tackle to the six tackle to the shift from the no retreat to one yard to back to none to five meters to mid-season in 93, we magically went from five to ten meter retreats um, and said, well, how can we avoid all of these um, silly influences without a lot of um, understanding of what we're getting into? and apply that. And it came down to a blended model of, like I said, the NCAA and the NFL model. Now, you can't do the NCAA model because there is no draw at all. And unlike Rugby League, they have a roster of around 80 guys. That's a lot of people to rotate through, and you can play a much, more long, a much longer length and, well, 
find other people who aren't as tired, but that's not really an option here. But that isn't to say that their actual method of bringing the ball out closer to your opponent's try line isn't a good idea. So you take the ball, and this is, was the findings as published in The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. You start the ball 20 meters out from the try line, the opponent's try line, and you give the team that won the first toss a set of six. Why 20 meters out? Well, it gives enough space for players to have horizontal movement, but it also takes into account a limitation that you do not see in other football codes. 11 of our 13 players have to retreat 10 meters. That makes charging down a field goal a very difficult task, more so than the other codes. So if you're 20 meters out, and we'll say the approximate average of uh, meters gained based off a single play the ball and a really good hit up, maybe we'll call it, say, six to eight meters. You've already gotten near enough to that 10-meter uh, mark where that retreat has gotten less and less and less. And what does that do? That promotes try scoring over the field goal. Now, there's nothing wrong with the field goal, and I'm not one for making kitschy rules that bastardize the history of the game that undermine the 80 minutes played because these are very tired athletes after 80 minutes. You have to look at their health as well. But what we've done in this case is why is a try also more important? Not only is it the driving quality that shifted rugby league, rugby union, American gridiron, and Canadian gridiron away from a system where kicking a field goal was actually valued more points than a converted try or a converted touchdown, but it's also giving two opportunities to avoid a draw because that try can be converted or not converted. Nobody has taken away any laws. Nobody has said you can't try uh, score a try. You can't score any which way or another. Um, and after that, it, you, you take the score and say, okay, well, did the team with the ball score? The answer is yes or no. Based on that, the other team then has that same opportunity. We're ensuring fairness to both sides on the field, in the game, and beyond that. The idea is that each side should have an opportunity to touch the ball, and each side should have the choice whether they want to kick a field goal or not. Um, and let's run, just run through a scenario. Imagine the first team scores a try and converts it. The second team then has the opportunity to even the score. If they don't, the game is over. They tie it up. Let's You repeat the scenario again. Let's say they score a try and don't convert. Now you're in a situation where the actual uh, team that has a chance to now respond to it can either lose the game, tie the game, or win the game, and then it's over. So when I was approached to do this, and I spoke with a few guys from the RLPA, uh, the question was, how are we respecting the laws of the game? Again, nothing was taken away. We've just learned a little bit from someone else who does something similarly. But we haven't shoved a circle, a circle peg into a square cutout. We've adopted it for the understanding that this game is unique to itself. Rugby league is unique to itself. And we can't just say, well, magically, let's make this four downs, because it's not. Uh, have we respected the 80 minutes prior to that? Well, yes, because we've given each team an opportunity to touch the ball and have a chance at scoring. Have we promoted uh, try scoring as a way of entertaining us in the most spectacular way that we've always had in history that respects the trend from greater points for your field goals to fewer points for your penalties and field goals? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, and does that also 
mean that you have less of a chance, uh, of a, uh, more of a chance of avoiding a draw? Also, yes. And the last piece of that is, are we respecting the health and safety of the players? And the answer is yes, because as Tom mentions in the same interview, 80 minutes is a long time to be playing, and if you're doing an extra five or 10 minutes, the style of play does tend to become more frantic, and more frantic play does lead to more potential injuries. Uh, I come from a country where people get paid a whole lot of money to play sports, um, and they're usually the ones that get paid that much usually aren't the norm. Most don't, and most professional athletes have very short careers. So I think it's very important that we realize that their earnings stratified and spread through a lifetime is actually quite small for the vast majority of them. So have we respected their ability to play that game as long as possible as their career, since it is so heavily weighted towards earning at one time in life? And I think that's been done as well. Um, uh, a certain colleague of mine who will remain uh, nameless uh, has described uh, uh, the process of changing the laws as uh, similar to a uh, uh, papal election. You know, you don't know what's going on, and then you see some white smoke, and you know the decision's been made. Um, <laughs> and we just had this this past Thursday, and we don't know what's come of it, really. But we do know that people are aware of this issue. We do know that uh, multiple news sources that I'm also not connected with have also covered the issues with overtime and specifically Golden Point. Um, I think in, again, answering uh, Richard Cashman's question, what does all this research mean? Well, it means that with a better understanding of rugby league from its origins, and I mean pre-1908 origins as well, we can see what we've done right we can see where we've made good decisions that have fallen short, and we see where things are going for now. A lot of people are uncomfortable with changing laws because they feel that it's not being true to the sport. And I'd argue that not just within sport, but in culture and even within religion, uh, some of the most enduring uh, institutions in mankind, whether you subscribe to one or not, you're part of, you know, part of life and you see how people live that there's a difference between following the letter of the law as opposed to the intent of the law. And one universal in football codes is that we like a wide open game. That's never changed for any football code, actually. Um, and the laws that have changed throughout the years have been done to address a specific issue at any given time. Now, have those laws become ineffective because the game has changed around it? That does happen a lot. So respecting the people that are trying to maintain the tradition of the game, I feel that what I was asked to come up with respects that history to maintain the intention of the law, to maintain the intention of the style of play, more than just an easy following of the letter of the law. So uh, I like to have a good chat, so I think uh, let's just open it up now. Joe. Um, in favour of Golden Point mm -hmm. up until your talk. And I put my hand up somewhat facetiously because of the 2015 Grand Final, which I obviously spoke about. Of course. Um, <laughs> I'm not necessarily in favour of Golden Point, but that, that Grand Final was an almost perfect inversion for Golden Point, was it not? In the sense that it gave sort of first and was clearly a turning point in that match, mm -hmm. this kind of redemptive chance. Uh, and I'm not saying it's going to happen every time, right? But of course. 
Absolutely, and I, that's actually a really, uh, I was almost kind of, and I feel like I succeeded in baiting you just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> do you feel that, and this is, I'm not trying to throw it back to you to be facetious, but do you feel that uh, Golden Point in that situation um, was really a Golden Point in the way I was discussing? Because how did North Queensland get the ball? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very they so Brisbane actually lost the opportunity, yeah. and nobody would say that that's unfair. That's bad luck. Yeah, sure, sure. But sure. Golden Point, as it's currently structured, if Brisbane were to maintain possession or any team for that matter, march down the field and kick a point, well, whoever they're playing is going to feel pretty robbed, and there's just a sense of injustice, uh, especially after again 80 hard fought minutes. I again said very openly, I'm not against a draw because in life we all have deadlines, whether it's for an assignment or if you drop dead. If you didn't do anything, once you're dead, you're dead. You can't do it anymore. Uh, and that's the same thing. 80 minutes of regulation time is regulation time. Um, but I have no issue with what happened actually in 2015 because yep. each time was given an opportunity at playing the ball and scoring. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. Yes? Do you want repetitions of 1977 and 78? Look, I like being entertained just as much, as much as the next guy, but I think we still have to simultaneously. Again, that, that's in an era of, um, again, uh, the definition of words do shift over time, as does amateur. Uh, and a lot of these guys uh, back then did have to train, and they did have to get time off of work. And But the training regimens were not the same as today. The... Uh, things were different then. In certain ways, the game, you know, everybody likes to say bring back the biff, but uh, <laughs> in certain ways, the game was more violent then, but in other ways, the competitiveness of today's game is a very brutal toll on the physical body. Um, and in that sense, you know, amateurism may have been protecting ourselves from ourselves. Um, so uh, I'm hesitant to give an answer either way, but they served really good entertaining values, I think, for that time. But I think we still have to answer the question as it is, you know, for today's game. So um, I'm almost convinced by your argument that it does strike me that luck, as in the flip of the coin, is an intrinsic part of the game anyway. There's mm -hmm. lots of bad luck in rugby league. Yes. And, um, and it is excruciating when it doesn't go your way. But that is actually one of the fundamental things about things often don't mm -hmm. go your way. So it's sort of, I don't think it's inconsistent to introduce an element which is based on luck. Because mm -hmm. um, it can be a referee's call or it can be a whole range of other factors, the direction of the wind. or it, It's not a, an objective or neutral game anyway. So it is an arbitrary aspect of luck, but there is quite a bit of that in the game anyway. Uh, you know, I th personally, as a referee, I take offense to that. No. I do... I, I, yeah, oops. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do referee actually because I like saying fit, but I especially like yelling at people. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, but you know, I'll be you know just to answer the question directly. Um, I I do think there's a difference though in that first coin toss. I mean, there is an argument to say home team advantage. You know, home field advantage. You could just pick whatever you want by being the home team. A lot of a lot of sports do that. And I th but I don't think flipping the coin to start the game as to who receives and who kicks off is as detrimental at the point of the beginning of the game to what it is 
if you do it in overtime with the current system because you still have 80 minutes after that first coin toss as opposed to the game is over because somebody won it. And what I had suggested is in order to be consistent with the game, the team that received the ball in the start receives it again. I think that's fine. I mean, I'm happy with another result as well if, if they, people feel it's more egalitarian to give it to the side that didn't receive. But I think it's also important before we make a decision that we're, we're informed at the actual psychology. of. So I'll give you a, a, an interesting statistic that in fencing, it seems pretty not relevant here, but it actually is quite fascinating and I think applicable. When you are in the direct elimination rounds, what ends up happening is should you go beyond that extra time, you're given one minute, at least when I was competing, uh, and this is for national competition uh, in the US and globally. Um, you're given one minute, and whoever wins the coin toss, if nobody scores, that person wins. But what if I told you the people who win are the ones that usually lose the coin toss? There is a psychology, and that is the reality, that people, uh, as far as I'm, you know, all the stats I've read, the ones that lose the coin toss have an imperative psychologically to score because they know they're going to lose anyway, and therefore they end up winning more. So winning the coin toss in and of itself, I, I hate using the word arbitrary entirely, but a coin toss at the beginning of 80 minutes versus a coin toss after 80 minutes versus now understanding the psychology in an albeit individual sport um, can actually have an impact on group psychology of a team. So um, I think uh, it's good to take those things into account before making those decisions. One thing about gold or coin, of course, there's two. There's two very important scenarios. There's the regular season scenario, and then there's the finals. Correct. Now, when you're in the finals scenario, it's a, what we call seeded knockout. Mm -hmm. Right. So no matter what, there's a team that is higher ranked than the other team. Correct. So there's never a scenario that a coin toss, in theory, decides it unless we're in a let's just say knockout round for mm -hmm. some reason. So in that case, there should always be a favoritism for the team that is higher ranked. Mm -hmm. So I go back to, in fact, history to look for the answer there and we go right back to the third grand final ever mm -hmm. in 1910, right? Where the teams ended up, it was the first ever grand final draw mm -hmm. where it was four all. But it was decided based upon ranking. Mm -hmm. So from my point of view, I like the <coughs> point in finals, five, ten minutes, I prefer ten rather than five. Get your money's worth, right? But you know your position before you start. Mm -hmm. If the higher ranked team is, you know, let's say if the lower ranked team is not higher than the, high, than the, the higher ranked team, a draw at the end of 10 minutes means the higher ranked team has not been beaten. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they win. It could also mean that. And you know what? That's actually very similar to the fencing analogy as well. Uh, the, and I think that's actually a very fair statement, and I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, because, again, statistically, historically, everything's right based on the merit. The only thing that I would probably add to the equation and ask is as sports entertainment, would people prefer to see that extra time happen? But that's education. 
So mm -hmm. one of the issues you have here is there's an education issue where people think the team's coming even. Mm -hmm. Therefore, because they come, they think they're coming in even, there's this perception that the coin toss must decide things. While in regular season games, they are even mm -hmm. as they come in. But again, an education issue, because if anybody who's watched the game as it's heading in towards a draw, that final 10 minutes is more exciting than what happens after the bell. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 again. The issue here is when you watch TV and you see what's going on, everyone starts coming into the game because, oh, they've gone into Golden Point. So there's an issue of communication that, wait up, we're 10 minutes out and the game's even. The excitement should be being pushed at that point, not after the bell has been blown. Again. Because you see the, the South St. George Grand mm -hmm. semi-final, right? Mm -hmm. Three field goals, bang, 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 bang. Mm -hmm. Way more exciting than what happened usually when something happens with a, a simple golden point, catch a ball, go off the field. I, and I'm not, I, I want to take mm -hmm. the importance away from the coin toss. Mm -hmm. Bring it back to the rank. I again, I think it's a matter of personal choice. I think uh, there are people that would like to maintain that. I think there are fewer Australians compared to most other sports that don't have as good of an understanding that there is a ranking in the uh, postseason, uh, in the finals, if you would, just based on the structure of how things happen here for the finals. The semifinal is not a semifinal based on international definition the prelim final is, and there's already that assumption of greater ranking uh, going into the finals. I'm not saying that the education isn't lacking, and I think most people would agree that we could all learn more about how the operations work. I know I got a fair number of phone calls when people said, wait a minute, is this that weird mutual infringement law you were talking about and complaining about all these years uh, <laughs> in the middle of my watching the grand final this year? And I said, yeah, that's the one. The education removed the problem that we had in 78. Where in '78 they had the grand final, they had the replay, and still nobody knew what would happen as we went into the end of the grand. It was the replay, mm -hmm. and the only reason why they said there was going to be joint premiers at the end of that day was because a kangaroo tour was about to dash off to England. Yeah, no, there, there, there's a certain you know reality to that. I think we do have a lot more distance between our domestic and our international seasons now, and the emphasis on club teams in rugby league specifically, is very high compared to the international. Um, there's a lot of sports like that, but I do think that those uh, matches in the 70s are uniquely different to today, and um, we'd have to really understand what, as a form of entertainment, people enjoy more, winning by ranking or winning by uh, finals. No, 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 please. If it's a related question, we can stay on the topic, and then we'll hop over. I hear it the same. I think that's really interesting. But it's really interesting to think of when two teams go into a grand final, they think they're on a level playing field. And then if you introduce that rule, right, then it becomes, well, actually, they're the top dog and we're the underdog. And we have to make sure we win to win this game. But it does disrupt that assumption of the final being two teams coming together, equal, bang. Yeah. Not, not to borrow from another code, but it does interrupt the story of uh, any given Sunday. Yeah. I was just going to ask, under what you're proposing, yes. 
Would the, would the players actually be in favour of it, given the, the team getting the ball mm -hmm. at, the, at the, the first six set, set of six mm -hmm. has to decide whether they go for a field goal mm -hmm. and then risk being, um, you know, overpointed by the by the responding team by scoring, you know, scoring a try or a try. Or do they want that responsibility of having to choose whether they go for the field goal or the try? You know. From the people I've talked with, players present and past, that actually has not come up once. They just the gen the general consensus has been that if each team knows this going in, and each team is given you know a fair shake to score, that seems fair enough. Really, because it's under that umbrella of equal fairness towards scoring, and it allows them to play the game in a very calculated setup format, as opposed to a haphazard one that predisposes them to greater chances of injury. I suppose it's like, do you take the two, or do you, you know, go for a try? Yeah. I suppose it's a similar arrangement. Do you, do you risk taking the one, mm -hmm. and hoping that you can defend defend against the other team getting, mm -hmm. getting the field goal? Or do you, do you risk going for the try and making it hard? Yeah, and I think it becomes tactical, which in and of itself is kind of a beautiful part of the game. The question of whether you should just keep on taking, and I don't like calling them easy yards because a hit-up is physically brutal to do, um, but uh, we'll call it strategically simple yards. Um, or do you get the ball out wide? Definitely the retreat from 5 to 10 meters. Yeah. now, you'd say that every team is focused on scoring, kicking the field goal, mm -hmm. and goal point, and tries sometimes come about through, mm -hmm. through actual errors in, the, in Correct. making mistakes in setting up for the field goal. Mm -hmm. No, and I do think, like I said, that's kind of the beauty of the sport that, unlike other codes, not just football codes, but other sports, there's more than one mechanism of scoring points. And that really does contribute to the greater strategy that a team either in possession or not in possession uh, can do. It's the same concept of if you want to kick or receive. It's... Um, although that's not really the done thing anymore at the, uh, the coin toss. Uh, there's an assumption at who gets the ball anyway. Um, but I do think that that question you're asking in terms of which team really wants the ball first, you know, combining that with that fen fencing statistic, it's going to be interesting because you're going to get people who really believe in, we'll call it, icing the kicker, uh, even if statistically uh, in the NFL there's no difference between a kicker getting iced or not. Uh, for those final points. Um, so I just think that that's part of the beauty. That is an extension of the game itself. Okay, we'd better leave it there. Please thank thanks, Spencer. Thank you, Professor. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the conclusion of the Rugby League Reflections Conference. Really would love to get your thoughts on anything that's been discussed in any of these presentations. So hit us up at the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter, as is the Tom Brock Bequest Committee. So give us a follow if you're not already, and we will speak to you tomorrow.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.